On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about science, specifically experiments that are being done to try and find a medical pharmaceutical vaccine cure for COVID. But there's so many of these projects going on right now that a McMaster professor says some of them are being lost. We can't keep up. They're being dumped and we are losing the ability to find out whether these are successful or not. It's a really interesting conundrum that the science community is facing. Stick around for that one. We're also going to talk about Tim Hortons. Numbers for Tim Hortons in the second quarter were awful. Why is that? There is an explanation. We'll tell you what it is. And we're going to talk about standing on the sidelines of an NFL field as one of the members of the chain gang and seeing 350-pound men bear down on you, ready to crush you into a bug. One of the people we're going to be talking to has been there. He's been at the bottom of that pile. NFL season starts this week. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a question that everyone is trying to find, everyone who's in the medical field, the research field anyway, and that is something that would help to deal with COVID, whether it's a vaccine, which I suppose right now is the holy grail, whether it is treatment options for people who have it, whether it's something else that would be a preventative mechanism that you could take. Everybody who's in the research field seemingly around the world, <clears throat> excuse me, is in scramble mode to try and find something. But if you read a new report and, and look into this, there a question pops to my mind anyway, and that is, could there actually be something already that exists or that is very close to existing that could prevent this or help with this, but that we don't know about? Well, that may seemingly be the case because a McMaster professor says there is... There are so many research projects going on right now that it's almost chaos and stuff that may be promising is getting lost in the shuffle and stopped by people stopping their grants because of, well, let me, let me just bring him in. He, he will explain far better than I will. His name is Dr. Edward Mills. He's with Health, Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact in McMaster. Uh, Dr. Mills, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much for having me. So as I understand this story, and I, I think everybody understands right now the vast number of people who are out there trying to find something that is going to work with COVID. As I understand it, there are so many projects going on right now, so much research that it's essentially become chaos in the science world to know what's going on. That's a good description of it, yeah. Which is, why is that a problem then? Um, well, one of the main reasons is that um, uh, we have difficulty understanding when a research project is giving us truly usable information or not, or whether it's just being marketed. Which means what? Because I would think that if I am a researcher and I have started to make what appears to be some kind of progress, I would be able to definitively say, look, we may not have an answer yet, but we're getting there. Why would that not be a good thing? Well, you know, you, you bring up a very good point about there was really tremendous enthusiasm from the medical community to respond to this uh, pandemic. And in the clinical trial and evaluation of drugs world, this uh, resulted in unprecedented registration of clinical trials and ideas for what interventions might work. And so, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been 1,900, uh, a little bit more than 1,900 planned clinical trials. 
my own guess at the end of, uh, let's say, at the end of this year, I think we might have two dozen clinical trials that give us any useful information. So that's only a small proportion of the planned clinical trials will ever actually give us usable information. So if we start with 1,900, let, let's just round it off. So that means, let's say it was 50 that are left. So 1,850 trials started. Do you believe that 1,850 trials that may fall by the wayside all found nothing or found only useless information? Or were some of them potentially valuable? I think there's a variety of complex issues at play. Um, one of them is that, uh, you know, lots of well-intentioned trials were planned. And if you think about it, uh, running a trial in Hamilton for COVID, um, it sounds like a great immediate response to, 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 um, to the needs of the local community. But the reality is that COVID in Hamilton was never really that widely uh, prevalent. And therefore, running a clinical trial is going to be very difficult in Hamilton. And so a large number of those 1,900 trials that I mentioned were well-intentioned trials that were planned in communities that ended up not being hit that badly by COVID. That'd be one of the reasons you end up with a lot of trials that are not going to be very usable. And these, uh, I've never worked in the science field, but I'm assuming that financing these trials is not inexpensive. These things cost money to do. They can. I don't think they're necessarily all that expensive. So, um, we shouldn't necessarily think that this is something that, uh, you know, is only available to those with ties to industry. There's certainly costs associated with them, but well-established research groups probably had some funding available to them um, so that they could get some sort of trials off the ground. But there's no question of the 1,900 trials that I mentioned, perhaps only a couple hundred will ever receive funding. And because there's so, whether it's not necessarily the money up front, because you say they don't all cost a ton, but the person who finds a vaccine is going to score. I mean, there's going to be big, big money at the end of the rainbow for whoever can find the vaccine that works. So is the idea then that if we don't see something that's working right now, ditch that one and move on and let's try something else that might work? I think that the best idea, if we look at uh, whether it's vaccines or therapeutics or drugs, if we look at where the best information is coming from, it's undoubtedly coming from uh, the UK. And then we have to ask ourselves, so why is the UK giving us the best clinical trials and not Canada or not the United States, for example? And the reason is uh, infrastructure towards collaboration. So the UK has a similar Um, public health system that we have in Canada, but they also promote collaboration on research. So they have uh, funded several large trials that are simple clinical trials that every hospital in the UK participates in. And part of their funding uh, for the hospitals is based on the premise that they're going to collaborate should the need occur. And in this circumstance, the need did occur. And as a result, they were able to put together Uh, very quickly, important trials that are now giving us the only usable information of any um, from any clinical trials. Here in Canada, we have a few clinical trials going on. Most are never going to recruit the number that they plan. And in the United States, because they don't have a public health system, um, uh, sorry, they don't have a a uniform public, uh, publicly accessible health network, it's very difficult to do many meaningful clinical trials. So you end up with small clinical trials that are uh, maybe only representative of uh, specific locations. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Mills, one of the other things that I'm reading here is, and this is where things get really confusing. We don't still know an awful lot about COVID. We know a lot more than we did, but there's still a lot of things we don't know. I'm reading the the overview of this report. It suggests that there may be drugs that we've applied as tests at a certain point in the virus's lifespan that may not be effective there, but may possibly be effective at a different spot. But because the drug didn't work when we where we tested it, it's been tossed out altogether. Am I reading that right? That's correct, Scott. And this is one of the um, probably most scientifically embarrassing elements uh, for the establishment of, uh, for the medical establishment, because I think that uh, the medical establishment is not doing any better job of interpreting the science than the public is. And so they have a lot of difficulty understanding when a drug has been tested in severe case uh, hospitalized uh, patient on a respirator, for example, uh, and that drug either does or does not work, um, shouldn't necessarily be applied to interpreting whether that drug definitively does or does not work in, let's say, an early stage patient or in a prevented population. But because when it was tested, it didn't work, it gets tossed aside. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the majority of medical information right now is not being reported at medical conferences or in scientific publications the way we historically would and, and therefore would have an opportunity to debate them. The majority of medical information is being released on social media and, uh, and reported on online magazines uh, or newspapers, and therefore it's interpreted... Um, and, and whatever way it might be promoted by um, social media or the journalist, uh, there's a lot of misinterpretation that goes on. So I mentioned to you this uh, important UK trial. It's called the recovery trial. It's probably the trial giving us the most use, usable information at the moment. They recently found that, that uh, steroids were very good in very late stage patients who are on respirators. You, you probably heard about that um, finding. They also found that uh, drugs like hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir, an HIV drug, uh, were not effective in that same population of hospitalized uh, severe patients. That trial didn't look at outpatients. It didn't look at prevention, populate, prevention populations, um, where in fact we do expect those drugs to have a treatment effect, uh, or we would be hopeful that they might have a treatment effect in those populations. We simply don't know. And um, what we ended up seeing afterwards is that a number of clinical trials were shut down. Uh, the funding was rescinded or the ethics approvals were rescinded on very large planned clinical trials based on findings from this quite different population. I, I almost hate to ask this question, but um, we certainly know when you mentioned um, hydroxychloroquine, that was a drug that President Trump mentioned and talked about. And I, I wonder if politics start to weigh into this because we know how some people feel about him. And if he touts a drug, uh, then a lot of people would say, well, we don't want to have that thing. That can't work. That must be a hoax. I mean, do, do politics factor into these things? They shouldn't, I guess, but do they? So I would say historically, I don't. I can't think of too many circumstances where politics has overridden the evidence. But in this circumstance, it definitely has. And... Um, you know, I sympathize with most people, uh, Canadians, uh, on their perspective on this. Um, but the reality is we shouldn't be allowing politicians to determine whether a drug works or not. We have to evaluate it rigorously. And uh, in the case of hydroxychloroquine, we don't know yet whether or not the drug works in prevention or in early treatment. We'll have to wait for the clinical trials 
but some people have already made their mind up on that based that's, on political views. That's what I was just going to say. So let's say that a test is done, and, and I'm not I'm not saying this is going to happen, but let's say a, a widespread test is done that shows that hydroxychloroquine really does work. Are people even going to accept that it works? Because as you say, they've already made up their mind because the idiot down in the States has said, no, it doesn't, or it works, and therefore I don't believe it does. Well, so you bring up one of our greatest challenges because we are we have a number of uh, clinical trials going on right now of hydroxychloroquine. I work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We do a number of trials evaluating these interventions. Um, hydroxychloroquine, there are several um, large prevention trials going on that are hoping to recruit tens of thousands of health workers to evaluate whether hydroxychloroquine can prevent them getting infected. Uh, those have been then put on the back burner um, because, as I mentioned, either funding or ethics has been rescinded. Even if they do, in fact, work, it's going to be a very difficult message to now put out there that perhaps this drug has an effect, even if we do it in the most rigorous uh, manner possible. It is uh, it is a fascinating conundrum to be in for the science world. We we like to believe that science you know has all the answers and it's just science. It's straight. It's linear. We can figure it all out with science. It's it's maybe not quite that easy. There is more to it than probably we would like to consider those of us who are just the lay people sitting on the outside looking in. Uh, Dr. Edward Mills, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, go, by the way, uh, go read after we're done. Not right now. I mean, I don't want to send you away from the radio, but go read. It's Dr. Edward Mills. You can read more details even about this conundrum that science is now finding, that it has these studies that are being done, but for various reasons, the studies are being dismissed and dropped before we know what the results are. And there could be good stuff in those studies, but we aren't going to know that. It's a real, real challenge right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many of you will be familiar with the fact that Tim Hortons, the chain, is owned by a group called Restaurant Brands International. It's also the company that owns Popeyes and Burger King and a few others. And in the last financial quarter, Burger King's sales were down 13.4%. It's been a tough quarter. It's been in the middle of COVID. Tough days. Uh, Popeye's, however, up 25%. That's probably an outlier, a huge success story. But Tim Hortons, well, last quarter, they kind of cratered, dropping 29.3%. That's on their revenues based on year to year. And every year, that Restaurant Brands International has owned Tim Hortons. Apparently, the growth of the Tim Hortons brand, the growth of Tim Hortons company has shrunk. Is this a one-off that we just chalk up to COVID and bad news and tough times, or is there something else going on here? Let me bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Last week, I said it's been so long since we had Marvin on, and then we're three days later and he's back on again. But we love it when he's here because he brings these things down to an understandable level. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. I'm glad to be with you. I would think that these would be tough days for any restaurant. We know that. We've seen that in the restaurant business. Um, for a long time, they couldn't even be open. Mm-hmm. So sales are bound to be off to some degree. Um, but other brands under this umbrella, this Restaurant Brands International umbrella, didn't suffer the same fate or not quite the same fate. Why has it been such a tough quarter for Tim Hortons? Well, when you contacted me about this, there was a story in the Star about this, and, and the author of that story had suggested 
five ways to quote unquote fix the problem. But I have to be candid and say I'm just not sure there is a problem completely because you've picked an odd time to do this comparison. The second quarter of this year, which ran from April to June, was just a terrible quarter uh, in the economy. And in particular, what this means for Tim Hortons, I don't actually think of Tim Hortons as a restaurant. Uh, I do think of Popeye's as a restaurant. I think of Burger King as a restaurant. But I think of Tim Hortons much more as a grab-on-the-go kind of a person. And to give you a statistic to compare to what you were suggesting, uh, during this time period, April to June, 3.4 million Canadians who had been working in offices primarily in downtown cores of large cities were told to go home and work from home. Well, what don't you do when you work from home? Well, you uh-huh. don't commute. Yes, you get up from the bed and you go to the dining room or the <laughs> kitchen true. or the living room. So you commute, you know, 20 feet, 30 feet. But you're not taking the GO train, you're not taking mass transit, and you're not stopping at Tim Hortons on your way somewhere to grab a quick coffee on the GO. Now, it is true you could get meals, you can get lunches, you can get chili, you can get more things at Tim Hortons, but primarily we think of Tim Hortons as a place to grab a coffee on the go, and we weren't going any place during this time period. Whereas opposed to uh, a um, Popeye's or even a Burger King, thanks to Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats, I could order in a meal for the family and we all get our favorite treats from Popeye's, but are you going to order in from Uber Eats or skip the dishes a couple of double-doubles, probably by the time they get to you, they're going to be cold. It just it doesn't seem to make sense. And so while I get what you, your premise here, that some restaurants weren't hit all that much, and in fact a few of them even showed their sales going up, I think Tim Hortons is more exposed to this question of, of commuting than just about anybody else. Hmm. When I think of their locations in Toronto, whether it's at Union Station or in the Path, underneath all those skyscrapers in downtown Toronto, what are those businesses doing when there's nobody in those skyscrapers? It's a really tough business, and the question that remains, is it going to come back? And that's the hard thing for us to predict at this point. So Tim Hortons, by your description, I think it it, it, it makes a lot of sense, is kind of the impulse buy at the front of the grocery store, as opposed to going just to buy your fruit and vegetables. You get to the front and there's something there. That's kind of Tim Hortons. You walk by and you're on your way, so you grab a coffee. And if you're not walking by, you're not going to see it. Well, or more likely you're driving by. You know, the complaint yeah, sure. always with Tim Hortons is the drive throughs But people, you know, get a coffee to go. Oh, there's, it's the same thing goes with sports. You know, as a, as a father and a sports enthusiast, I'm going to take the kids to hockey. I'm going to grab a Tim Hortons on the way. We, we just think of it as something I do when I'm on the way to something. But it's not something I do when I'm commuting from the kitchen to the bedroom. Not as intentional, for sure, as a restaurant. So... Does this, you just said at the very end there, that question, you sort of left it hanging there. Does this come back? Uh, clearly, restaurant brands, when you look at the numbers and what they've done with Popeyes, which, uh, you know, the story was pointing out that you're alluding to was pointing out that they have been targeting Kentucky Fried Chicken as the, the company that they're going after to try to pass. And clearly, they've had some great success. 25% up is, you know, I don't care when it is. That's a success. Is this the kind of thing that they're going to have to do is be very intentional now with Tim Hortons to really push that brand to bring it back? Or do you think naturally it flows back? Well, I'm not sure there's anything natural about it. Uh, Scott, another way to think about this is business people like to plan. They like to look out two months, four months, six months, a year down the road and plan for things. And right now, right at this moment here on September the 8th, 
it is a very difficult time to look that far down the road because nobody knows where we're going. Uh, I, I describe this as the COVID destination. We know where we were in January and February, and I think many of us think we're going to try to get back to where we were, but just as many of us think that we're headed towards some new normal. Great. Now describe the new normal to me. Nobody can. Mm -hmm. Uh, To take again that example, 3.4 million office workers that were sent home. Now in a recent study, more than half of them are quite happy if they have to stay home forever because they don't commute. So uh, guess what? I just got 60 minutes back in my day by not being on the road. I'm not spending the money I used to spend because I'm not filling the car up with gas. I'm not buying all those those impulse purchases we just talked about. And there's a lot of people who say, well, I kind of like that. And then you layer on to that the fear of COVID. You know, what if it comes roaring back? What if it comes roaring? I don't want to go back in the workplace. I want to stay where I am safely ensconced in my home. If I'm Tim Hortons and that is the new normal, that people are not commuting to work, that they are not doing these things, then you have to totally remake this brand. On the other hand, if this is a temporary thing and we are working our way back and by Christmas time it'll be like this has never, ever happened, then I'm not sure you have to panic and throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin, I guess if I'm if I'm hearing what you're saying, then there have been those who over the last number of years since Restaurant Brands International took over that have criticized them saying Tim Hortons is the stereotypical Canadian brand. And if you're not Canadian, you don't really understand it. You don't get it. And so you're, I, I, from what I'm hearing, you're saying that's not what this is. This is not a case of a, an, an umbrella company messing with things and not understanding the market. It's simply a situation and circumstances that are out of everybody's control. Well, I don't, I don't want to make it quite that simplistic. It's certainly clear that Tim Hortons is a, uh, a mature brand. Uh, I hate to call it old-fashioned, and it probably does need some sprucing up around the edges. I feel really sorry for Tim Hortons this year, uh, back in <laughs> back in February and March. Guess what they were going to do? They were rolling out the new Roll Up the Rim contest. No longer did you have to break your thumbs trying to roll up the wind rim. <laughs> there was going to be a smartphone app and a website and... It was all canceled thanks to COVID. You know, in a way, it's like the gang that can't shoot straight. Every time they try to do something that they get criticized for, other circumstances intervene. They have launched some new products. No, not all of them have worked, but I I actually don't complain about that. I think that's a sign of innovation. Good businesses are always trying some things. Some work, some don't. You think of the McRib sandwich at McDonald's. How many times have they tried to introduce that? And how many times have they removed it? They're still trying to find a way to make ground pork a palatable product out of McDonald's. So I I don't really blame them on their failures. But boy, you talk about a tough year to be trying to update your image. And I think that continues uh, even now, because what image do I want to own? I had kind of wanted to go after Starbucks, go after that young urban vibe, you know, nice nice restaurants inside with Wi-Fi. People sit and have a cup of coffee and go from there. Well, who's doing that now? And we're even finding these young sort of urban hipsters saying, well, I, I just want to cocoon at home with my family and my dog and cat, and I don't want to go out. 
How, how do you fix that if you're Tim Hortons? It's just a tough, tough time at the moment for them. It's a fascinating thing you raised there about what you, what do you want to be? Cause I think you and I may have talked about this some months back or maybe even more than that, because at one point, and I don't even know if the place is still open. Tim's was opening an experimental downtown Toronto high end cafe that was going to serve things that aren't even on its menu. It was going to be a, uh, as you, you'll call it the hipster cafe yep. kind of thing. As I say, I don't even know if that's still open, but it, it, it does make you wonder if there's a, a bit of an identity crisis here to try and figure out what is it that we want to be going forward. What is it we want to be and where do we want to be? So at this moment, Tim Hortons in Canada has over 4,600 locations. I, I joke that Tim Hortons is coming to a kitchen near you because we have so <laughs> saturated the Canadian market. Now, in this article in the Toronto Star, one of the five tips they gave uh, Tim Hortons was to slow down your international expansion and, and stick to Canada. And I, again, I'm not sure I quite agree with that. They are so saturated in Canada, the only way to keep this brand growing, in my mind, is to be looking for opportunities outside. Now, the logical place to be is the United States, and Tim Hortons has some success in the northern United States, where there is media spillover and traffic from Canada. But in the southern United States, as that song you played a moment ago, is more about Dunkin' Donuts than it is about Tim Hortons. So if opportunities present themselves in China, and you know they, they opened their first couple of locations in China in 2019, the plan was to open just an outrageous number, like 2,000 over a 10-year period, but that's a market that if you wait and you wait on uh, five years, you could be frozen out by other brands who've gotten in and now have the high ground. So I'm not sure this is the time to give up on international expansion. I do want you to fix the domestic market, and I want you to be relevant here, but I'm just not sure what that future domestic market looks like. What about, just we only have a few seconds left here, what about the other thing, though, that came up in that article, which was, you know what, do a few things really well rather than this expansive menu. And that's one of the things they were saying was, you know what, you are known as a coffee and donut place primarily. And if you were to pull back a little bit and do that, you may return to past glories. Do you think it would return to past glories or is that a defeatist attitude to start pulling back the menu? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend that they try to become a restaurant and really compete full-fledged. I know they have some sandwiches. I know they have some breakfast food. But you've got to be a grab-and-go place. And, and you can succeed at that as long as Canadians are grabbing and going. And, and so this is, again, the challenge. Um, I think what's happening right now with the schools reopening, and we're all going to monitor this for the next couple of weeks, is going to be very telling for all kinds of businesses if we get this right and the kids go back to school and there is no big wave of COVID, well, we may be on the high side of it and life may be returning to normal. But consider the other option, that we become like the United States, a 1,000 people a die every day, 50,000 new cases. We may be back to a lockdown, and for a grab-and-go kind of place, locking people in their homes is the worst news possible for you. And if I was restaurant brands, I'm just not sure which way to go. I'm sure they've got lots and lots of contingency plans, and whenever they can get a clear direction, they'll go implementing them. The problem is knowing when we've got that clear vision of the future, and we're not there yet. Well, the Keurig pots, uh, pods and the uh, Timbit cereal, I think, are the uh, the future, as you say, in, uh, coming to a kitchen near you. There you go. Uh, Marvin Ryder, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for the time tonight. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Thursday, which is two days from now, 
Time has flown. Summer is technically still with us, but for all intents and purposes, done. Sadly. Means fall is upon us, and you know what that means? Thursday is the opening of the NFL season. Football, that other kind of football, I mean, the first football never got started. The other kind of football, it starts on Thursday. I want to bring in a guy who has been up close and personal with this game for a long, long time, because for years, he has been one of the stick guys, one of the chain gang members, one of the measurement guys on the sidelines of the Buffalo Bills games, but he's much more knowledgeable than just about holding sticks. Steve Foxcroft is his name. Steve, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. Good to catch up with you. Are you going to be holding the sticks again this year, or has COVID kept you on the other side of the border? I am a survivor. I am not of COVID. I haven't got COVID. I've been tested regularly, but I, uh, I'm, I'm going to be there Sunday for the Bills opener. So I'm looking forward to that. And I guess I should clarify that I do have the right paperwork and everything in place to cross the border both ways. Uh, an exemption from quarantine that you have to apply for. I'm considered an American with a green card and all that kind of thing. So the first thing that listeners might be sitting at home and go, wait a minute, this guy's from Hamilton. How is he going to get there and do this job and so on and do it legally and properly and everything? So uh, it's go- it's going to take place. And you know what? The It's taken a long time. And I liken it to when everyone was talking about the NHL going to a bubble and we all thought it was going to be in Las Vegas. And then, what, a week or two, maybe a couple weeks before they started, they switched Vegas to Edmonton. And it was because they couldn't publicly say what was going on because things are changing by the, by the hour, by the day. And it's been the same with the NFL. We literally found out yesterday that this now is going forward. I'm I'm going to be really interested to see if they can get the full season in because they're not having the bubble like the NBA or the NHL. It is less than that. And it's, you know, baseball didn't do it and it had some issues. It seems to have sorted itself out a bit uh, or for the most part, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the NFL because unlike baseball, every single play, guys are lining up face-to-face, breathing on each other. Right. And I think the key is knowing that everyone's starting the day, starting the weekend, starting the, you know, wherever they are being tested and being negative. And that's the key because I was thinking that too. I'm going like some of the chain crew guys are going, well, we're going in there. How do we know if we're, you know, they're rubbing by us. we, We get bumped into or something like that in the bench area, but I'm going, well, wait a minute. They may be thinking the same about us. Like who are these guys just coming in? So, you know, the, the one thing is the testing that, that we're all going through. And you got to start off knowing that everyone should be negative when we start the day. And in some you ways, I'm going to feel safer when I'm at the stadium than getting to the stadium. You know, it's almost like going on an airplane right now, the way they talk about the filtration system, it's almost like a hospital operating room. Not, <laughs> not, that, not that great, but... But it's getting through the airport that would concern me. Once I get on the plane, I think I'd feel safe, not that I'm flying anywhere, but getting through the airport is the part that would concern me. So for me, on the weekend, it's going to be more about getting to the stadium safely, which should be okay. Stay in your car, drive there, get out. But once I'm in the stadium, I'm actually going to feel pretty good, I think. 
Well, let me let me offer up something besides COVID. Um, my buddy Scott Gardner, who until recently was a photographer at the Spectator, his last year as a photographer was doing last year's. I think it was last year's Labor Day game, and a play came to the sideline, and he had his knee smushed from the side on a player coming in. You are sitting there as a just a gigantic. Well, you're not gigantic, but as a as a target standing there, just ready to be smushed by these guys. I learned that, so I've been doing it 30 years. I learned that very quickly that you don't watch the ball, especially when we're right there. You have to watch right in front of you, the players coming at you. And in our case, it's often the big guys, right? The linemen. So the ball may go ahead of you, the ball carrier, but then the linemen come sweeping in behind and they're rolling each other and all that. And yeah, I've had my fair share. The the worst one was back a guy named Brian Cox for the Dolphins. Miami Dolphins, hated, absolutely. Yeah, hated Buffalo, came out from the And the, the feeling was dream. mutual, by the way. The feeling was very yeah. mutual. <laughs> exactly. He came out from the tunnel and gave the middle finger, let's say, he did? Uh, to the crowd. And he got fined $10,000, 5000 for each finger. <laughs> and he sacked Jim Kelly... And they both landed on top of me at one point. This is and how did that feel? Right. Oh, it's like when you fall on the street. You can't you can't let on that you're hurt, right? It's like if someone you know we're out on the street, we trip and fall, and oh, watch out for the guy tripping people when we've done it to ourselves. Well, in this case, I couldn't let on that I was hurt, but I was dying, you know. So, and then I remember just Jim Kelly, you all right? And I go, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> what I don't think that people can understand, because it really, Steve, it does not translate to TV because everybody is a similar size on an NFL field, and so nobody really stands out. What doesn't translate is how enormous these human beings are who are on those NFL football fields. Enormous and agile is the first thing that I noticed. They're huge, but they're fast. And then the one time I saw Cam Newton pregame, now he's with the Patriots. Um, and I said to the guys, wow, that's a pretty big linebacker. And they go, no, no, that's the quarterback. Like, they're gigantic. It's, it's ridiculous. And so quick and agile. Yeah, you don't, and, and I've only seen it a few times up close, because uh, I, do I don't work a lot of NFL games and, and haven't over the years, but you don't know what 360 pounds looks like with equipment on until you've seen it in person. And then you say, how, when those guys hit somebody or land on a quarterback, how do those guys even get up? The quarterback, I mean, who have now been pancaked. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I'm going to tell you that, like, I was a little down in the dumps yesterday. So this actually has me looking forward to something. And the reason why I was down in the dumps, it was when it really got to me that our Labor Day game wasn't going to happen in Hamilton yesterday. And I've been, I actually missed it. And, and I was feeling down in the dumps about missing the football and going to the stadium. And, you know, the earlier games in the summer, I miss them too, but not as much as yesterday. Yesterday kind of got to me a little bit. And, and at least I kind of have this to look forward to now. So I'm glad that the NFL, and, and I'm not comparing NFL to CFL and, and NFL's better because they're playing in the CFL isn't because it's a different business model. Oh so yeah. Not even going there. Right. Like, CFL needs people in the seats to make it a go. But just for all of us, like having things start up again has, has helped us 
I think. It's been good for society. So I'm looking forward to, like you said, Thursday it starts on TV. Sunday I get to be back to, uh, Marvin Ryder said it earlier on your show, like what's the new normal? But for me, this is going to be a little bit of normal again. Well, let's hope so. I mean, let yeah. us hope so. And let's hope there's a couple things that, that uh, you know, as I, as I look at this season, um, there's a few things that are going to be abnormal. The first one is what we talked about, whether or not they can make it through the season. Because, I mean, I, I, it's, it, you're going to be able to keep playing if you lose the odd guy to COVID. And I don't mean die. I mean that they, get, they test mm. positive so they can't play. Um, I, I fully expect that will happen at some point, that somebody is going to test positive and he can't play. That, 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 to me, seems inevitable. I don't know, though, what happens if you start getting your superstar quarterbacks or whatever who now have to sit out. Now what do you do? If you're a team like Baltimore and Lamar can't play because he's mm. got COVID, or you're Tampa and Tom Brady suddenly can't play because he gets COVID. And by the way, we don't know. They, they don't have it. I'm just okay. throwing out names. Right. What do you what do? Matt, Matt Stafford in Detroit, he, he had the false positive earlier. Or, you know, I, that's what I worry about too. What if these false positives, uh, the bio lab doesn't, you know, do it the right way or something just happens or a computer glitch. Or false negative, Steve. False negative could be worse because now you could be exposing everybody to it. False negative would be worse. Like that would be, that would be not good for anybody. But that's the part that I just, I wonder about. Now, just so you know, like I go down Friday to be tested. So we're, we're like everyone involved is being tested on Friday. You're going to enjoy that. Yeah, you're going to enjoy that. That giant stick right up your nose, poking your brain is, is, I'm told, is a lot of fun. So I've done it it three times. And let me give a little thumbs up to what we do here. The Dave Anderchuk Arena, the Mountain Arena, as I call it, and you probably do too, right, Mr. You had your birthday the other day. But we grew up calling it the Mountain Arena. Um, I've been there three times to be tested just for my own peace of mind. We are an essential service. I was involved in the CEBL basketball that Mike Morielli put together down in St. Catherine. So, so I've been tested, so I've had it and yeah, it's unpleasant, but I think, I think when you say peace of mind, they took a piece of your mind out of your (laughs) head when they retracted that thing. That's what happened. That thing goes in deep. There were memories that you had that were on that (laughs) stick when it came out. Exactly. I talked to Dr. Laura up there the second time I went. I said, the first time I was a little uncomfortable. She goes, yeah, it's like getting chlorine water up your nose. And I go, that's the perfect description. Not pleasant. So Yeah, yeah. I've heard other people use other descriptions for it that were less <laughs> um, nice. So, yeah. uh, but so anyway, so the first thing is whether the season is going to get finished as we get back to the NFL. The second yeah. thing that's going to be highly unusual that I'm going to be is Tom Brady, not with the new England Patriots, oh. which on the one hand, the Buffalo bills finally have a chance to win something. Um, right. the, but it's going to be strange. It is going to be so strange to see that guy, not with new England. Yeah. It, that is, that's the story of the, uh, off season for sure. It's, I'd like that he's in the NFC, like let the NFC beat each other up. You know, if you're a Buffalo fan and uh, it'll be interesting for sure. And when, uh, but, you know, with Belichick and, and New England, they get Cam Newton, and if he's healthy, you got to wonder if he's just as dangerous or, or dangerous enough. 
Well, who? Okay, so who's your pick, Steve? Does who ends up with a better record this year? Tampa that, with I, Brady or New England with Belichick? Who ends up winning that battle? Oh, I think I think I would go with uh, Brady because of the supporting cast. I think the supporting cast in New England was uh, dwindling, right? Like his receiving core is nowhere near what it is in Tampa. So I, I would have to say, and Tampa was pretty good last year, except Winston kept throwing the ball to the other team. Well, I think they had the top offense in the NFC, yeah. didn't they? They yeah, did. But yes, yeah. he, he did throw a bunch of interceptions. You take those away and yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, know. the third thing that then becomes something that I'm going to be really interested to see, and this is, this is, this is a tough one because, you know, when we talk about football, usually what we like to talk about is football. Um, and that's kind of the point here is that uh, the issue of viewership, the, the NBA's TV ratings have been in a, not a good spot, these playoffs. And some people have said it's because people have found other things to do. Other people have said it's summertime and other people have said, no, no, it's the fact that there's a lot of people who like to watch sports as an escape and as a diversion from the rest of their real life. And when, all these social issues now make their way into basketball. It's no longer as much fun. It's not an escape, as I said. And so there's people saying, no, these, these ratings, these viewership numbers are impacted by that. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I am very confident the NFL is going to have many of those same social issues highlighted in their games, kneeling for anthems and signs on equipment and everything else. And I also am wondering... What are we going to see when you can't have as many fans in the stands? So it's going to be people watching on TV. Is there going to be any kind of impact or is that a total non-issue when it comes to the NFL? Well, I think the NFL is going with the regular calendar and that's going to help a ton. Like the NBA right now in their bubble, they're playing when they would never be playing before in August. You know, they would play uh, through June. So I think that affects it a little bit too because COVID let up a little bit through August where we were allowed to go out and do something and experience a little bit of summer, but the NFL, they're lucky in that they're on the regular calendar. They're playing when they're supposed to. The only difference isn't going to be people in the seats at probably 80% of the stadiums. So I think they got a shot to, uh, again, you know, we talk about the normal and normal for us after Labor Day is watching football, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, college, CFL, NFL. So I think they got a shot based on that, the regular calendar. You know, we were all dying just to get out of the house come July and August and not be in front of our television. So I think that might hurt the hockey bubble and the, uh, and the basketball bubble, the NBA bubble. I I agree with that part, uh, which, which leads to only one conclusion. If NFL ratings are where they should be, you, you would then conclude, you know what, people are feeling a little more normal and they're okay with all the social justice stuff that is now yeah. part of sports. If NFL ratings, however, are not where they have been traditionally, maybe that becomes a better indicator than what's happened with the NBA because of the things you explained. Right. And maybe then it does have an impact. I think, I think this is going to be very, very telling because Again, it's not about arguing whether or not the issues are valid or good or whatever else. It's the idea that sports has always been the thing you go to because you don't want, you want to have a break from your life. And and it's been a really interesting thing to see if that has an impact on people when the life spills into their sports and their other diversions. 
Right. And as long as it ends before the game too, right? If it doesn't pop up during the game. So we all live through Kaepernick's kneeling and everything like that. And I think we all kind of know that, okay, for the anthem part, something might be going on. They've gotten away from showing some of that live on TV. So it's just a matter of what you're saying. I agree with if it creeps into the game and keeps coming up and resurfacing, that may turn some fans away. And keep in mind how many teams and how many NFL fans are in places in the States that are not necessarily big fans of kneeling for the anthem or those kind of things. Right. I mean, you, you, I, I frankly, you know what? I am shocked, honestly, that Roger Goodell at this point has not said, you know what? We're not going to do the anthem before games. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to save it for the Super Bowl. We don't need to do the anthem before games because if we take it away, we can probably eliminate a huge flashpoint that is going to get some of our fans really antagonized. I thought for sure he was going to say, we're just going to go this year without the anthem. No problem. Right. I, I expected that too, but would it have caused a flashpoint within the players who want to demonstrate? Well, if I mean, if they, if they say, if, if those players are kneeling because the anthem signifies something negative to them than getting rid of the anthem you would think would be something they would be on board with or okay right. with i would think but yeah, yeah you may be right you may be right this may be the they opportunity to, to make they the want stage. their platform right that they may be right stage so it'll be interesting now in the day of protest right now i want to protest the fact that your not so deep thoughts column isn't going to be available to me and others anymore well, you know, that's a discussion for another day, but yes, yeah. you know, every, <clears throat> things change, everything moves along yeah. and, um, you know, but thank you for that. But yes, it's, yeah. uh, you know, you know, I'm your biggest fan with that. You entertain us every week with it. So it'll be, uh, I, I appreciate that. Listen, that is Steve Foxcroft. <laughs> look for him. If you're watching the game this Sunday, the Buffalo Bills game, look for him on the sideline. Hopefully, hopefully not being wiped out by eight or 900 pounds of linemen. Um, if you see a guy go down and he doesn't get back up, just be praying for Steve. I'm not as agile as I used to be, but it's all a game of angles and I'll be getting out of there hopefully in time, Scott. Steve, appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. Steve Foxcroft, again, he is, uh, he will be on the sidelines. So look, look for him. You'll recognize him. He, 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 you know, he's got that Foxcroft family look. Like his brother Dave, the CFL official, like Ron, all of them. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.